Um, hello, everybody, and Kia Ora. So in today's session, we will focus um, on the Austro's new guideline uh, for the design and construction of large cantilever and gantry structures. Almost 500 people are registered for today's session, so welcome to you all, and thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Austroads, and I will be moderating today's session uh, together with Avon Law, who will moderate the Q&A part of the webinar. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. A little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. The project we are focusing on today was delivered under the Transport Infrastructure Program, which is managed by Rose Gappi. A bit of housekeeping, uh, our presenters will speak for 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. The report and the slides that this presentation is based on can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. There's also a question section there, so please use it to send us your questions uh, for the Q&A at any stage during the webinar. If your question relates to any particular slide, please include the slide number in your message. Uh, to help us answer your question as best as we can. Um, you can also use that same box to let us know if you have any technical problems, but just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your connection. So closing your browser, um, leaving the session and rejoining it via your registration link usually helps. This session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. Um, and if you listen to podcasts, you can also find Austroads in your podcast app. So our presenters for today are Andrew Wong, Claire Jagger and Linda Zibel. Uh, Andrew Wong is an engineer with two decades of experience uh, in the outstanding delivery of construction, structural design and rehabilitation projects, including bridges, tunnels, roads and buildings. Claire Jagger is a principal engineer in the transport structures uh, team at Alcom. Uh, she has 10 years experience in the design and asset management of bridges and other structures in Australia and in the United Kingdom. Uh, and Linda Zibel has been with the transport of um, with the Department of Transport and Main Roads Queensland uh, since 2005. Currently, she's working in the construction materials unit, looking after the steel fabrication for TMR projects and uh, managing the fabricators under the registration scheme. So we will first hear from uh, Andrew. He will take us through the project background, uh, followed by Claire, who will cover the delivery approach, uh, fatigue assessment, and on-site quality checks. And then Linda will talk um, about the importation of steel for construction. Um, so welcome to all our presenters, and I will now hand over to Andrew. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's webinar. I'm Andrew Wan, I'm the project manager on behalf of Oswalds for this project. So we have a lot of gantry structure out there, they're over the roadways. They are classified as high risk structures because when structural failure occur, most likely it will be catastrophic. As you can see in this photo here, it can cause damage to property, which is the car, and also injury to the occupants in the car and also traffic delays 
inconveniency and also financial loss to the community. And if it occurs, normally they would grab the owner of the site first for interrogation and then the consultant, also the contractors. Most likely we will end up having reputational loss and also possible criminal offenses. That's why we want to minimize the risk of structural failures by promoting good practices. Most of the failures, they, are, they occur due to poor design and or construction. And I couldn't find any documents out there. They just focusing on the design and construction of Ganges in great details. That's why we want to ensure good design and construction by providing consistent advice. That is aligned with national and international best practice and also to benefit all stakeholders by reducing the risk of failures. So this is our project team here. I've got myself as the project manager. I come from a design background with some construction experience. Our documents also talks about fabrication of steel. So that's why we had Linda, my colleague Linda, to join the core of the project group, the project team. Linda, she has a lot of knowledge into fabrication of steel, corrosion protection, welding, nuts and bolts. The contract to develop this guideline was awarded to ACOM. So Kaya is the ACOM's project manager. We also had a working group to provide input to the development of this document. When we got the draft document ready, we also sent a copy to all the members of the Bridge Task Force for review. Once we got the final version ready, then we forwarded to the Oswald's board for approval for publication. So this is our working group here. I've got myself and Linda in it. And also we have Evan and Glenn from Transurban. We also have Yin Chin and Andy from Transport Victoria and Finzen from Department of State Growth in Tasmania. In our working project group, so we talk about what topics we should cover in this document. We also talk about the layout of this document. So our project started in October 2019. Firstly, we had a literature review. We look at all the documents and standards nationally and internationally, and also look at the past failures. And then we pick up the good practices and the learnings from there to put into our document. We had more than 20 individual stakeholder consultation sessions with consultants, more authorities, fabricators and contractors. And we only had a small delay due to COVID-19 in March. We just paused for a short while to reassess how we should go about this project. At the end, we got a good outcome because everybody got started at home. So we all turned into this document to burn our time. The document was published in January this year. And today is the last milestone, which is the webinar. So thank you for attending this grand finale.
document has five parts in it. The first one is the introduction. The delivery approach, it includes such as those aspects we should consider before we start to design. So we should look into safety design and also design life. From our stakeholder consultation, we know fatigue is a hot topic. So our design part also covers fatigue design. Construction that covers such as fabrication, corrosion protection and welding. Also quality. To ensure good quality, we need to have good communication and collaboration between all stakeholders. That's why our target audience of this document is all the state authorities and also the consultants, contractors and fabricators. We also made a lot of references to a lot of documents in developing this guideline. So if you are interested, just look into the reference page in this document, you can find a lot of useful documents. So that's it for me. Now I'm going to pass the board to Kaya and Linda to talk about the technical parts of this document. Thank you. All right, good afternoon, everyone. My name's Claire Jager and as Andrew suggested, um, I was the project manager, the AECOM project manager for the, the development of this guideline. Just a quick disclaimer before I start today, um, I have a 10 week old son at home and some nights we don't get a lot of sleep. So if what I'm saying doesn't make sense, please make sure you use the chat function and ask lots of questions today. Um, I apologise that I don't have my web webcam on today. Um, my internet connection appears to be quite slow today, so it's just slowing things down. So um, I've just got it turned off today to try and keep at least the audio going. So please bear with me. All right, so as Andrew suggested, today Linda and I are going to run through the high level sections of the guide and highlight a few of the key issues that our stakeholders um, have identified throughout the project. Um, we are no by, we don't have enough time today to go into a lot of detail, but we hope that after today, you'll have a general idea of what's included in the guide and it will be a useful reference for you in the delivery of your gantry and cantilever sign projects in the future. All right, so the first section that I wanted to run through today is section one of the guide, uh, section two, sorry, which is uh, the delivery approach. And one of the sections we've included in there is uh, matters for resolution section, which is very similar to that included in AS 5100.1, which covers um, issues that need to be covered and resolved prior to the design commencing. Now the list we've included in the guidance document is by no means um, comprehensive, but it does group and highlight a few of the issues that were raised during stakeholder engagement based on the learnings from past projects. And we've grouped them all together here so that they can be highlighted early on in the delivery of these sign structures and then resolved so that they don't become issues later in the project. All right, so I'm just going to run through a few of the matters for resolution that we've included or that were raised throughout um, the development of this guidance document. The first one is contract type. So consideration needs to be given to the type of contract and how that affects your uh, the delivery of the sign structure and things to be considered. Um, does the contract encourage communication or discussion across the delivery phase? And do you want, what kind of review and um, 
site checks do we need at the end and, and on site and who, who needs to undertake that process? This can all be included or influenced by the type of contract. So the sec second matter for resolution we've included is the design life, which might sound quite straightforward, but it does need to be acknowledged and agreed upon early on in the, in the de um, delivery of these sign structures. So what is the design life? Things that including influence the design life are, for example, if the road is scheduled to be upgraded in 10 years, a reduced design life may be accepted. Currently, the Australian Senate states that there's a 50 year design life for these type of structures, but it's at the discretion of the relevant authorities. Now here in Australia, a lot of the state road authorities do require a 100 year design life for gantries and cantilevers that uh, go over the carriageway. And so it's something to be aware of and make sure documented agreed prior to the design of the structure commencing. The next um, issue that needs to be discussed and agreed upon prior to the design commencing is the supply availability of the materials. So where are the materials to be procured um, and what type of section size is going to be used? Um, we did speak to one of the contractors throughout the um, in the stakeholder engagement section and they indicated that the section size and the procurement um, of that section size delayed their project up to nine months, which could have been avoided if it was thought about earlier on in the project. So it's something to be aware of and make sure that everyone's on the same page about what section size is going to be used and where it is available and if there is specific lead times associated with that. The next one there on the screen is approach to fatigue assessment and I'll cover that a bit more in the next section which goes into a bit of design. Then we've got safety and design. So things to consider is, is a platform required? Is a gate required to keep out vandals? And finally, is there any ongoing maintenance required with um, safety and design and uh, what then needs to be considered and how does that influence the delivery of these sign structures? And finally, the review and documentation requirements. Um, now this can be quite straightforward, but consideration, for example, are shop drawings to be included with the as-built documentation? What documents are required at handover? And what maintenance slash ongoing operation documentation is, is required at the handover stage? All of this can be discussed and agreed upon early on so that all key stakeholders are on the same page. Now, as I mentioned, this is not a comprehensive list by any means, but it's just to highlight a few of the key issues that were raised um, throughout our stakeholder engagement process so that the lessons learned from past projects can be shared throughout the industry and we can, we can learn and not make the same mistakes again. All right, the third part of the guide focuses on the design of the um, sign support structures. And one section in there that I wanted to focus on today is the fatigue limit state assessment. So the fatigue limit state often uh, controls the design or in, um, impact is the governing uh, design criteria for these sign support structures. So currently in the Australian standards in AS 5100.2 and 5100.6, which are the relevant standards for these um, sign support structures, they direct the engineer to use the American standard specifications of structural supports for highway signs, luminaires and traffic signals, which I know is a bit of a mouthful, um, when 
assessing the fatigue limits date for these sign support structures. Uh, why does the Australian standard uh, recommend that we use the American standard? And it's because that the Australian wind standard, so 1170.2, does not cover fatigue specific wind loading specifically for sign support structures, such as galloping natural wind gusts and truck induced wind gusts. I would note that, the, however, that the recently updated version of the Australian Wind Code, which was released last year, does include specific drag coefficients for sign support structures. However, as mentioned, it doesn't cover this fatigue-specific wind loading, which is only covered in national. Right? And from our research, that's the reason why our Australian standards currently uh, indicate to the engineers to use the American standards, which is fine and quite straightforward. It's quite a uh, useful uh, standard to use and quite straightforward to use. However, there is one catch. In the 2019 revision of the American standard, it states that the minimum number of sides for tubular or hollow structures is eight. So this limits the use or restricts the use of square and rectangular hollow sections, which um, still are used today in um, the design of these sign support structures in Australia. So why are these restrictions included for the number of signs? Well, a researcher by, um, named Roy in 2011 concluded that increasing the number of sides and or increasing the internal bend radius can improve fatigue performance, which sounds quite common sense. He concluded that fatigue cracking in multi-sided tube to transverse plate connections initiates early at the bend corners due to high notch stress concentrations. This can be seen on your screen here where they, he's compared uh, the round tube and multi-sided tube. You can see that the notch stresses highlighted in uh, red there for, for the multi-sided tube are higher than the round tube. This research uh, precipitate uh, recommended that uh, was the reason for the restriction in the number of sides being included in the American standard. The commentary to the American standard further states that these sections should not be used for highway sign, signal and luminaire sign support structures and only circular hollow sections, open sections and fabricated plate sections can be used. So where does this leave us? The Australian standard tells us to use the American standard, which has a limit on the number of sides. But what do we do in Australia if we still want to use rectangular and square hollow sections? If the joint detail, detail we require is not covered in the American standards, which it won't be for the square and rectangular hollow sections, it refers us to use the Appendix C, which is alternative methods for fatigue design in the American code. It is important to note that the Appendix C requires results to be verified experimentally, which is often timely and incredibly costly. So where does this leave us if we do still want to use square and rectangular hollow sections? There's currently a gap in the guidance on how to assess the fatigue limit state for these sections. It is important to be aware of it and agree on an approach early on in the delivery of these sites support structures if you still intend to use these type of structures. Throughout the project we became aware of this issue and there has been a recommendation made to the code committees for AS 5100.2 and 5100.6 
as I believe the draft for the uh, the draft of the commentaries for these codes are currently being um, developed at the moment. And so we requested that there be some guidance included in these commentaries about how to assess the fatigue performance for square and rectangular hollow sections to um, fill this gap in the guidance, current Australian guidance. In the meantime, what, what can you do if you still do want to use square and rectangular hollow sections? Um, we've included three methods in the guidance document at the moment. Um, these are methods that are currently being used uh, throughout Australia. Um, it's important to note though that these methods are not included and not stated in the Australian standards at the moment. So you must proceed with caution when using them and you need to use your engineering judgment and get them approved by all stakeholders prior to the design commencing. So the first method is a combined American standard and Australian standard approach. So it combines using the loads, the fatigue loads in the American standard with this, the stress assessment um, in the Australian standard. This method is presented in a guideline uh, developed by the Department of Transport in Victoria, BTN 014, um, which out, outlines this approach. As I mentioned, you must proceed with caution if you adopt this. The use of two different codes to assess the fatigue limit state design should be approached with caution as it does not align with the original intent of either code. The second method that you could consider adopting is the superseded version of the American standard. As I mentioned, it's only the most recent 2019 version that includes this restriction on the number of sides. Um, so if you refer to the American standard, the fifth edition, which was released in 2009, it does include connection details for square and rectangular hollow sections. Once again, proceed with caution as the use of superseded codes um, should be agreed prior to the design commencing. And the third and final approach or suggestion that we've included in the guidance document for consideration is um, using Appendix C, which is a finite element approach to the assessment of fatigue stresses with an independent proof check as opposed to ex experimental validation. Once again, proceed with caution if you're going to do this and get agreement from all stakeholders prior to adopting this method. So that's a lot of information if you weren't aware of this gap in the guidance um, prior to the, our presentation today. So I thought I'd try and sum it up in three quick points for you. Um, firstly, be aware of the gap in the guidance document. That may influence which section sizes you choose. So be aware of it and make sure that there is an agreement prior to the design commencing by all key stakeholders on how fatigue assessment is going to be approached. A recommendation has been made to the code committees developing the commentaries 5100 and hopefully there'll be additional um, guidance in the future included in these documents to bridge the gap. And finally, there's three alternative approaches in, um, including the guidance document if you still do want to use square and rectangular hollow sections. Um, make sure that you proceed with caution, get them agreed by all relevant stakeholders prior to, um, prior to adopting it and to mitigate the risk of unconservative results, as you can see there, consider an alternative approach to check the results.
to, to ensure, mitigate the risk of the unconservative results. And finally, consider using circular or fabricated section, and this removes this issue entirely. And that's it for me for the time being. So I'm going to hand back over to Linda. Um, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Linda Zebel. I work for the Transport and Main Roads in Queensland and been working in the steel fabrication area since uh, 2009. Uh, and I'll be discussing the importation of steel. Um, due to the increase in material and global market, the use of imported steels cannot be taken lightly or ignored. However, with the use of these materials comes some risks. These risks include material which does not comply with Australian standards, fraudulent documentation, materials which are not suitable for welding and potentially long lead times. In order to reduce the increase and increase the chance of receiving compliant project, a compliant project, the asset owner or their nominated representative should undertake several checks throughout the design and fabrication process. Um, availability of material being sourced from overseas should be taken into consideration. Um, the steel suppliers in Australia have limited capabilities when it comes to manufacturing all of the available steel components. Both the steel suppliers and steel distribution centres um, will source materials from overseas. However, if large quantities are needed for a project, there may be several weeks lead time required for the material to arrive into Australia. Given the large amount of uh, infrastructure being proposed and built in Australia um, due to the COVID economic recovery, we are finding that all material, not just imported materials, are starting to have issues with lead times. The process from design through to installation should be taken as a holistic approach. The Workplace Health and Safety Act 2011 states that the duty of care is the legal responsibility of all parties involved in the design and construction of structures. It also states it is the duty, legal duty of all parties to take reasonable care so that others aren't harmed. So in other words, designers need to use the correct Australian standards for design. Designers also need to use the appropriate material Australian standards to ensure material strengths are appropriate for the design and material dimensions are available and they can be constructed. In addition to these, there may be other state authority requirements such as RPQ in Queensland. Once the item is at the fabrication stage, material standards are used to check for the compliance of material purchased. This may be done by the fabricator, the contractor, the asset owner, or potentially all three. Both imported and domestically made steels should comply with the requirements of these standards to ensure the design intent is met. It is recommended prior to fabrication, a review of the material test certificates and other fabricated fabrication documentation is undertaken. This is to reduce costly rework and reduce the risk of using non-conforming materials. During fabrication, as a minimum, the fabricator should comply with the requirements of ASNZS 5131. There may be other contractual documents which the fabrication should also comply with, such as road authorities' technical specifications. The fabricator may also need 
to be registered, approved or pre-qualified to undertake the work through the asset owner's own scheme, a scheme certified by a third party or a combination of both. Steps that can be used to ensure material and fabrication conforms to Australian standards include the fabricator should state the relevant Australian standard on the purchase order to the steel merchant. If this document, if this is documented, then any material not meeting these requirements should be sent back and there should be no question about it. During a recent project, uh, TMR was supplied material test certificates for six mil round bar to uh, ASNZS 3679.1, but it was a 1996 standard. Unfortunately, there was no availability of the current standards, so we had to get this material tested. So the next step is request the material test certificate. This is an Australian standard requirement and should be provided without any issues. Check the material traceability. Traceability can be done through either a heat number, a production number, or any other unique identifier. The number should be found on both the material test certificate and the material. There are a few, are a few limitations to this, so ensure you check the relevant standard for what these are. Check the material test certificate meets the requirements of the Australian standard. Clause 11, uh, identification, test and inspection certificates of each material standard outlines the necessary items for both the product and conforming documentation. The information here is the heading from the headings from the clause 11. Each dot point is explained in more detail in the standard and each standard has the same. There are several examples on how to read a material test certificate available, including ones from the Australian Steel Institute and Blue Scope Steel. It's important to check the correct grade has been supplied. There's no visual difference between grade 250 plate and grade 350 plate. Materials supplied from overseas or to an overseas standard are not equivalent to Australian standard materials and they are not interchangeable. They're Check that there is an International Laboratory Accreditation Cooperation or ILAC signatory associated with the, the property testing. For example, the laboratory used by Blue Scope Steel to carry out their chemical property testing is accredited to NATA, and NATA is a signatory to ILAC. There are similar processes for overseas mills and manufacturers. Another check is the boron content. Is it specified? Boron has become a critical issue over the past few years with imported materials. The addition of boron in steel has been used to supply steel into several countries without attracting the same trade tariffs as standard structural steels. Boron can have detrimental effect on welded materials. Too much boron can cause brittle embrittlement, which is problematic for structural fabrication applications. Another way of ensuring imported steels are compliant to Australian standards is through the use of third-party certification. The certification is of the mill and audits several aspects of the production cycle. It is important that the certification scheme is accredited by a body such as JazzAns. Third-party third certification has been in place for reinforcing steel for some time, but is becoming increasing, um, an increased requirement for structural steel.
Shown here is one example of traceability between material test certificate and the product supplied. This example uses a production number for traceability. The fabricator may need to carry out their own checks throughout the processing of material to ensure traceability. As I previously stated, this may be achieved through different ways, but this has limitations and these are outlined in the Australian standards. The process is similar, although not as advanced, for high strength fasteners. This shows the requirements of the material test certificate um, for fasteners as outlined by ASNZS 1252. So again, it's important to ask for material test certificate during the purchasing process. It is also recommended there is traceability established between the material test certificate and the box of fasteners supplied. Commercial fasteners are no longer manufactured in Australia and therefore the compliance and traceability is important to ensure the item that has been ordered is what has been supplied. If the designer has specified the use of EN fasteners, then the required documentation will be different to the AS NZS 1252 fasteners. The Australian Steel Institute has a technical note which can be used as a guide for this type of fasteners. If you have any questions, I am happy to try and answer those at the end of the presentation. Now I'll hand over to Claire to discuss quality during the construction phase. All right, thank you very much, Linda. Um, this is just a quick section um, on our final section of the guide, which is based on, uh, or which presents on quality or raises some of the quality issues that need to be considered. So the two points I wanted to highlight today were key points raised during our stakeholder engagement phase of the project. Um, and firstly, um, is a point for the designer to consider. Um, so as designers, we could consider specifying hold points and witness points on the drawing that are critical to the structural integrity and behaviour of the sign support. So for example, if you have a fatigue specific or fatigue critical weld, let's make sure we highlight it um, I know it's usually covered in specifications, but let's try, let, let's consider putting a hold point or a witness point or guidance on how that weld needs to be prepared to ensure that the quality of the weld is as good as possible um, during construction or meets the requirements we need for the design. The second point there, on-site checks. This was another one raised during our stakeholder engagement pro, um, phase of the project and it's to consider who and what qualifications are required for the on-site check. So to confirm the design and fabrication um, out on-site is as per the design. Um, and this was, I mentioned back in our matters for resolution, so should, consideration should be given to nominating the qualification and extent of the role in the contract documents. And the final point I wanted to make um, and reinforce about quality and it should go for all our projects, is quality is the responsibility of all parties. So it's not just on the designer, it's not just on the contractor, and it's not just on the asset owner. The responsibility of all parties involved in the delivery of these science support structures. Um, so it's important to be aware, and if you see something, let's call it out to make sure that we have the best success um, of delivering a successful structure at the end of these projects. And that's it from me. Thanks so much, Claire. And that's the Q&A time, so I invite everybody to join me um, and I invite Evan. Hi Evan, 
Um, so it's all yours. And if you need me to jump to any particular slide, just let me know. Um, I'm here in the background. I'm just going to turn my audio and my video off. Yeah, thanks, Ekaterina. Look, um, thanks all our panel members for giving their presentation today. Um, certainly, uh, Claire, it looks like there's not too many interruptions. And, um, and uh, I heard you perfectly, but it sounds like there's a number of people that are lost audio at the same time. Um, so there are there are a few questions that have flown around. Um, so probably to you first, Andrew. Um, there's a question around uh, from Osroad's perspective: Is the aim to eventually close this design gap in fatigue design for square sections, or would there be a push across all levels to try to persuade designers? transport authorities and or stakeholders to use circular hollow sections at a section of choice for gantry stru structures similar to what the latest ashto code has done okay yeah we're not pushing we're not pushing to use any specific shape such as circular hollow sections it's up to the designer and also the owner to work out a font at the beginning what shape they want to use for example, what if they want to use CHS somehow, it may take a long time to get them to come in. If you can't wait for that long, then you may need to look for the other shapes such as SHS or RHS. So in summary, we're not pushing for any specific size. So that's something they need to agree on upfront what to use. And also we have, so as Karen mentioned before, we've got three different options to determine the fatigue life of the structure. I hope I have answered the question. All right. No, that's all right. Look, if there's more questions, um, uh, the community are welcome to, to send the further questions along and we'll try and get them answered. Um, a question for Claire. Um, on slide 26, a buttress vertical to base plate connections permitted? I would have to say off the top of my head, Evan, um, I can't answer that one directly. And I would encourage uh, members of the community to go specifically and um, look into the guide for each, uh, look, look into the um, standards for each specific detail they've got on their project. I would say I can see that there's a lot of questions that have come through on fatigue. And I just wanted to make a few general comments um, that the fatigue is not straightforward, the fatigue assessment. And, and so what we wanted to try and do in this guidance document is identify the gap, make people aware of it. What the guidance document does is it provides suggestions. It's not a prescriptive, um, prescriptive document. We encourage the use of your engineering judgment because um, our approach was that we cannot cover every single specific um, project specific um, circumstance. So what we wanted to do is highlight the issues, make some recommendations about how you could approach it, um, but we encourage everyone to still use your engineering judgment and make sure you adopt an approach that is agreeable by both yourselves um, and also the relevant stakeholders involved in your project. All right, well, thanks, Claire. Um, that probably um, helps to answer a few of the fatigue questions. Um, probably give you a bit of a break. Uh, Linda, 
probably a question for you. Um, in terms of quality issues um, that you're finding as a road authority, uh, is a certain is it becoming more common, or um, are you finding the same issues as you were a few years ago? What's what size projects are we are we talking about that we're seeing uh, potentially repetitive issues? Um, I, I from my experience, I think it's getting better, um, but at the same time, we are getting a lot more imported material into Australia. Um, it, I'm just trying to think what projects we probably have the most problems with. When you're talking large sections, so large gantries, um, it's the, there isn't a big problem that, I, that we've found. We do a lot of checks as we go um, with TMR, so um, checking traceability, checking materials, test certificates, um, so that sort of thing isn't um, isn't as common as it used to be. Okay, thank you. And, an, and another question for you, is the designer responsible for the safety and design during steel fabrication? Um, I couldn't tell you totally uh, with that because I'm not a designer, um, but I think it's, a, it's an overall approach. I think um, so the designer needs to uh, be comfortable, I guess, with who is looking at the fabrication side of things. Um, and if they're not, then they need to, I guess, find someone who is, who can do that sort of thing. But I think as a part of, from Queensland, I think it's, um, it is somewhat responsible, the responsibility of the designer. Sorry, Andrew. No, I just, yeah, I'll let you finish first. I just want to add a little bit more into it. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I believe it's a joint effort between the fabricators and also the designers. So such as the fabricators, they might want to have a, you know, when they want to put the components into the galvanizing bath or galvanizing, they probably want to know where can they do the lifting. So they might want to have a lifting point there. So the designer might have to decide or specify some details where can they do the lifting to make sure that side you don't want to you know to break it or while you're lifting it it will drop up it will drop down to someone's head or drop into the bath so it would cause an explosion or something all right okay well thanks andrew um here's a question for claire uh which method do you propose to assess a vortex shedding? The new ASHTO code does not cover this phenomenon. It only covers truck gusts, natural winds and galloping. Is the superseded edition of ASHTO most appropriate or older AS5100.2 codes? Once again, I don't think it's straightforward when it's not clear, um, when there's no clear guidance. Um, for example, our Australian codes recommend the use of uh, the American codes. So I would suggest um, in each each case, you need to consider the, consider the options. Vortex shielding should, should be checked. Um, so therefore, it's the responsibility of the engineer to make sure all uh, cases are considered and, and the relevant codes and approaches that need to be used. So sorry, that's a bit of a roundabout way of not giving you a straightforward answer, but it's hard to include guidance in the um, document 
specific for all cases. All right, I've got another one um, here for you, Claire. When does a care to leave a pulse or instruction need to comply with the ASHTO fatigue design? My understanding is that the Australian standards uh, specify that the fatigue assessment for all of these science support structures should be undertaken in accordance with the American standards. All right, well, here's a question for Linda. Um, looking at the guide, it seems like a lot of the steel proposed is coated steel. Would there be an option to use uncoated weathering steel to significantly reduce the ongoing maintenance requirements for these structures as this doesn't require any painting? Um, I guess that is up to uh, the asset owner. Um, some There are some structures I believe in New South Wales that are made from weathering steel um, uh, and it, I guess it comes down to where it's going um, because not all locations suit weathering steel um, and the potential of runoff um, onto cars or other property. Um, so yeah, it would be up to the asset owner to determine whether that's a suitable product to use um, and, and the location. I hope that answers. All right, a question for Andrew. Um, is there going to be guidance on future maintenance and monitoring? Well, we haven't thought about it at this stage, but it's possible to cover more, such as the maintenance and monitoring. And I know somewhere in, Vic in Victoria, somebody is implementing some SHM, I mean, structure health monitoring to some of the Ganges. So, yeah, it would be good to have it in the future, maybe in the, in the later version. I'm sure we will get a lot of feedback later about the, the version we just published in January. So yeah, it would be good to have it. All right, so this is a question that could probably apply to Linda or Claire. Um, is there a fatigue performance difference between hot and cold formed rolled sections? Linda, do you want to jump in on that one? That or? One. No, I can't answer that one, unfortunately. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, unfortunately, neither can I. I haven't, through my experience or our research on this project, got any comment on the varying difference between the two. All right. Um, so this one's probably for Linda um, or perhaps Andrew as well. Um, do any of you have any experience on the quality and procurement of large circular hollow sections, like greater than 300 mil diameter? Are these, as these are imported and typically not covered by ACRS certification, is there a recommendation on what quality systems should be followed in lieu of this? Um, so we look at traceability, so your material test certificate and the traceability to the structure. If there is none, then we look at testing. Um, so the standard um, 1163 will cover up to 610, I believe, 
um, anything above that um, requires additional stuff to do with it. It's it. There is um, information in the standard, but it's not completely covered by 1163. So this, the, the requirements are still there for that, that size material. Okay. Um, so Linda again, um, how would you enforce AS5131 if the structure is being fabricated overseas? Um, Probably quite difficult, but um, there is, a, I believe, there's a certi certification scheme that uh, will certify a fabricator to 5131. So maybe um, request that that is a requirement of the fabricator. Uh, question for Andrew uh, What is the responsibility of regulatory authority in terms of guidelines and standards? Okay, so for us, we need to have some requirements to make sure the end product, which is the Ganji cell, got to be safe, safe as for, you know, for inspection, and also everything is in inspectable. And also, you know, make sure it will stand up against any loading, fatigue, wind. Okay, uh, question for Claire. Um, the American standard says 100 million cycles to be considered for fatigue stress limit as per Appendix C. Is the number of cycle remains applicable for Osroads too? My understanding or my interpretation of that, there was discussion between the number of cycles um, and there is uh, a section in the guidance that does cover it in a bit more detail, I believe. We just haven't covered it in today's presentation. Um, and so forgive me, I'm talking off the top of my head at the moment, um, as I, I haven't looked at the guide for a few months due to being on maternity leave. But I do believe that we need to, the Australian standards um, does refer us to the American standards. So we are defaulted to that number of cycles um, to be strictly in accordance with the standards at present. But once again, I would reiterate that you need to use your engineering judgment when uh, determining what uh, approach to fatigue assessment you are using in the design of these structures. All right, um, this is probably a, a question for Andrew or Claire. Um, Astro does not require minor signs to be designed for fatigue. What is what is a minor sign? So yeah, I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly the definition of minor sign in ASHTO, but for my department, so we got a the sign area. It's larger than I think it's based on memory. I think it's larger than 40 meters square. Then we classify them as not a large, so as a yeah minor or small sign. Evan, I'll jump in as well and just make a comment on this. We did look into specifically a lot of the definitions because you'll see that our guidance document is called for large cantilever and gantry structures. So what is large? Um, we considered or came back to a risk perspective rather than a sign specific 
um, a size-specific one because the risk of a small or a large sign falling over the carriageway can still cause harm to the to the users of the highway. So we considered it a risk approach rather than um, specifically a size. So when looking specifically, does your sign need to be con fatigue assessment need to be considered? I would consider um, the risks and the consequences of failure specifically for your project case. Okay, thanks Claire. There's a lot of questions coming through with regards to square hollow sections. Um, I've got one here for uh, I think other maybe um, Andrew or Linda can respond to. In Victoria, we have had great difficulties in getting square hollow section designs for gantry structures approved by the road authorities. Given the unclear guidelines using combination of standards for fatigue designs, all the methods listed are not straightforward, and these are options. However, this has to be understood and approved by the road authorities, who may not be the most technically equipped to make technical decisions. I believe the road authorities are responsible to provide clear guidelines and state what is acceptable and what is not. Guidance documents needs to be updated so that it is absolutely clear for the industry. Are there any plans for any road authorities to update either 5100 or the BTN? So Evan, can I jump in that? Um, sorry, Andrew, I was just going to um, state that we have made the recommendation to the code committees drafting the commentaries to the Australian standards to try and help clear the confusion or the gap in the guidance up through the commentaries or the development of these commentaries at the moment. Okay, thanks, Claire. Look, uh, uh, time is running short, um, so I'll probably just go through two more questions um, and uh, just to let everybody know that these questions um, that you've raised will be answered by the panellists um, if they're not responded now. Um, so question for Claire relating to method three. It is not clear the how the involvement of a proof engineer would replace experimental fatigue testing when using FEA method based on appendixy of AASHTO. The approach used in Appendix C is very prescriptive in how the FEA model is to be used, is to be set up so that both designer and um, PE would most likely end up with very similar models and presumable, presumable results from the analysis would be similar. The ASHTO recommendation to use experimental testing when using Appendix C FEA modeling is presumably to validate the results of the FEA. Can you elaborate further on method three? Yeah, um, so the experience and the discussions we had through the, um, the project working group were that uh, two FE models are unlikely to give you uh, similar answers. And yes, I do agree that Appendix C is quite descriptive about how to undertake the finite element modelling. And if the example is, or if your project is quite similar to the example they provide, yes, you may get very similar results using um, two different engineers doing the same same check. Um, I guess it was our interpretation or belief that uh, two models can produce two very different results um, or they can be approached differently and that the guidance when you weren't following the exact example in Appendix C, um, that 
an independent proof verification may give you a different result or two engineers doing it differently may give you two different results, which is why um, we've indicated that uh, proof checking or verification, um, if you do get both answers, answers similar, then you can have, be pretty confident in your results. And if you don't, then you have to go look a bit further and try and explain why you've got two different models with two different results. So what we're trying to do with all these methods is minimise the risk of an unconservative result. Yeah, right. Well, well, thanks, Claire. Look, that that's that ends our um, uh, panelist discussion and question time. I'll now pass back to Ekaterina to close off for the session. Thank you very much, Evan, and thanks uh, to all our presenters for a great presentation. Um, we do have quite a few questions left, uh, and as Evan said, uh, we will answer them in writing and uh, send a copy of the response to everybody after the session. Um, so before we wrap up, just a few quick words about our next session. So if you are interested in um, road preservation and renewal, uh, join us tomorrow or on the 18th of June um, to hear about a new modeling framework, uh, supporting tool and a compilation of case studies that will help you evaluate road assets condition and select um, effective treatments. On the 22nd of June, we will talk about emerging technology um, designed to collect road pavement performance data. So we have more webinars on our website. Uh, please visit it for more information. Um, and as usual, uh, once we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. So please take a couple of minutes to fill it in uh, and send us your feedback. It really helps to know what you liked uh, and what did you didn't like and what suggestions you have for future webinars. Uh, once again, this session has been recorded and we will let you know when the link is available on our website. Um, thanks again, everybody. Thanks to our presenters. Thanks to everybody in the audience. Um, stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day. We will see you next time.